You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. There's a place here at the table. Your coats go by the door. You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor. I hope you wore elastic because your waistband's going to get tight. Take time. Hi guys, it's Ari and Sophie, and you are listening to Having a Night, the podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. It's almost the end of summer, girl. How'd that happen? Is that true though? Because I feel like Labor Day is, it's almost Labor Day, but Labor Day is not technically the end of summer. Doesn't summer end like September 21st? Well, I think like, like summer just ends on a certain day that some old white guy was like, this is the day that it's over. The fun is over. Maybe. Is it always on the same day? Yeah, I guess. Okay. That, that makes sense. Tell me what you ate this week. Oh, what didn't I eat this week? Um, (laughs) I'll just be short and sweet because we have such a great uh, episode coming up for you guys, but I just got back to Chicago. I've been on a little road trip. If you've been listening, you know, I was in Michigan last week and we ordered in from my favorite sushi place, Sai Cafe, our first night here. And it was so delicious. I've been going there since I was like truly a baby. So it was just a real joy to support them during this time and just eat a a lot of really good raw fish. What about you? What is your standard order when you go to Sai Cafe? We always get a gomai seaweed salad. We get a hamachi jalapeno. They have this other uh, salmon sashimi dish uh, that's like really, really great fatty salmon with salmon tobiko and wasabi tobiko. Yeah. So it's like crunchy and fatty. And then they make really great hand rolls. There's one with like a smoked salmon and watercress. That's so oh. good, but it's not like new agey. It's very traditional. There's a great, um, I think it's called like taco sansai. It's a, uh, oct- spicy octopus salad. Yeah, just a lot of a lot of I I got chirashi, which is just slices of sashimi over a rice bowl. The best. Yeah. Delish. Delish. What did you eat? Harry and I were up in Millbrook last weekend, and my parents were also there, obviously. And we had over a family who lived nearby for like a big socially distanced supper. So we did a big German feast, which was fantastic. So we got bratwurst, knackwurst. And another kind of wurst. Um, so we did three different kinds of sausage, German potato salad, German cucumber salad, which has like a kind of a creamy dressing on it. And then I also made like a creamy dressing for a butter lettuce salad that was so good. It was like, a, it was a green goddess, basically. Do you put so, mayonnaise in it? Mayonnaise, creme fraiche or sour cream, heavy cream. Oh no, buttermilk. And then a lot of tarragon, parsley chives. It was just, just really yummy. And lemon juice. Nice. I was actually making a green goddess for someone I was cooking for a few weeks ago who is dairy free. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And so I experimented with a bunch of different um, non-dairy yogurts to use. The almond one, is it like Kite Hill or maybe I'm, I have to remember the brand, but yeah. Um, it was really good, just a plain yogurt with all these herbs and then a little bit of mayo. Interesting, because I always feel like those vegan yogurts, I always feel like they have a sweet element to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I like yogurt that could either go savory or sweet, but I guess if you were using it for Green Goddess, then it must not have that sweetness. Yeah, I think it was just um, for texture and the tartness because it was plain and not not vanilla, but I know what you mean. They're, they kind of are less uh, tangy than, than normal dairy yogurts, but it did yeah. work. So all you yeah. dairy-free people out there, don't be afraid to experiment with your vegan yogurts and herbs to make a beautiful green goddess. Okay. You guys, this week, yet again, I'm going to say we have on 
such an exciting guest. And I really mean it yet again. We have on Chef Pierre Tiam, who is a Senegalese-born chef. He's been living in New York now for, since the 1980s. He was supposed to go to school in Ohio. He tells the story on the podcast, but he was supposed to go to school in Ohio and got waylaid in New York and became this incredible chef. He has a restaurant in Dakar. He has one in Lagos. And then he has a fast casual restaurant in New York called Taranga, which is in the Africa Center, which if you haven't visited, it's um, on the upper corner of Fifth Avenue, this really beautiful building. All of their packaging is compostable. Just going to give a little plug for that. And he uses all of these West African ingredients that he's brought to the States. And he's really, I think we hear a lot of this phrase, the cul- like he's a culinary ambassador. And talking to him yesterday, I was like, oh, you are what a culinary ambassador is. You are literally bringing ingredients from another place and introducing them to people whose palates have maybe never tasted these flavors before. In addition to that, as if that's not enough, he also has a company called Yolele Foods, which is a Fonio company. And Fonio is an ancient grain that is primarily grown in the Sahel, which is the area below the Sahara where Senegal is, all through Senegal, Nigeria. and it's a crop that reverses desertification. It's, you know, making huge strides and it's socially, I mean, it's very socially responsible. He's yeah. really, he, just everything he does have, has sort of a socially, uh, socially responsible bent to it, which is so incredible. We were so excited to have Pierre on and he's just really had such an amazing, interesting life and we're really excited to share his culinary experience with you guys. Sophie's making a face, yes. I'm making a face because as soon as we hung up with him, I went online and bought all five flavors of Fonio. So did I. And bought his, and bought his Senegal cookbook. I'm so yes, excited. I got the other two cookbooks. His cookbooks oh, nice. also were James Beard finalists. Um, yeah, he's just super accomplished and so down to earth. And it's like everything he does is good. And I mean that like, he's always, he's so aware of climate change and social justice and, and all of his food is healthy, but he's not preachy about any of it. It's just his way of life. And he's so eager to share it with everyone. And he just has a beautiful story to tell. And we were so happy to have him on. So I hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Pierre. Hello. How are you? We're, we're great. We're so excited that you're here. Can we start by uh, just talking a little bit about how your love for food came about and were you cooking at a young age? I mean, what was the journey really like for you? How did you end up here? Oh, wow. It's a, it's a good question. I wasn't cooking at a young age. You know, I grew up in, in Senegal. This is in West Africa. And in Senegal, for those who know, it's a gender-based activity cuisine. You know, it's like no boys in the kitchen, only women in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> but uh, but also growing up in Senegal, you also realize that food is a, such an important part of the culture. People take it seriously. Freshly cooked food every day. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You you go home from school after uh, for lunch. You go home. You know you and 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 that's just something every household. Is like, you know, going to the market on a daily basis, getting fresh ingredients. And my mom was just uh, one of those who I would call an early foodie. I mean, she had, mm. she had a collection of cookbooks. Uh, she had these cookbooks, the uh, classic French called the La Rousse Culinaire. And as far as I can remember, that's my early connection with food is I would love, I, I love to just go through the book and look at the pictures because mm-hmm. I just love these beautiful pictures. And my mom, once in a while, she would just thank you and, and, and cook one of those recipes. But all this to say that you grew up in Senegal, you have to be into food, you know, because every single household is like completely about cooking, even if you're a boy and you haven't cooked. But I never dreamed about cooking until later on in my life after going to college and uh, studying physics and chemistry. Wow. And yes, that's how it started. I studied wow. physics chemistry and and uh, it's just a, a set of circumstances that got me into the kitchen in Senegal the the students movement is is very political and I was part of those students who like one of those who were just like leading the strikes and that was a year where we got into a, a strike that went for so long that the government decided to shut the school down, the school system down just similar to what's happening right now with the coronavirus and the school mm-hmm. system that happened one year in Senegal in the late 80s 
And um, for me, like for many of my peers, we didn't want to have to start again a whole new school year. And I was able to get a student visa and come to the U.S. I came here to the, with a student visa in the hope to continue with my degree in physics and chemistry. And on my way to Ohio, a school, my school was going to be in Ohio, actually, uh-huh. places, a town called Beria. I never made it to Ohio because I decided to visit New York. I had a friend who lived in New York. I'm like, I'm going to stop by for a couple of weeks. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a couple of weeks turned out to be a couple of decades. You know? so oh, I, my I, God. I, yeah, yeah a, a fun adventure happened. I, I, three days after I arrived in New York, it was a, you know late 80s. You probably don't know what it was like. But uh, my friend lived in this really, really kind of terrible um, so-called hotel and uh, and three days after I arrived, we got robbed. <laughs> and oh I got God. everything I had in my suitcase. <gasps> most most importantly, the, the money that I had to, to oh continue to Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to New York. <laughs> oh, and, uh, God. Luckily, I still had my return ticket for Senegal. So I had the option to either return or figure out a way, my way out of this. And my friend happened to be working in a restaurant downtown in the village. And he said, uh, look, the bus is really cool. They're looking for a bus boy. Why don't you take this position? You know, it's an easy job. That's my first job ever in life. <laughs> I never oh knew how to So I got, I got this job as a bus boy. And immediately, naturally, you know, as a bus boy, you, you clean up the plates and you take it back to the kitchen and whatever. And and the kitchen became this place, you know, I completely connected with the guys in the kitchen. There were a few immigrants like me, as well as this chef who had studied in France, so he liked practicing his French with me. And, right. uh, and all of them, they, they really felt for me. And they're like, you know, why don't you, the chef actually offered to, to start me from scratch. You know, you need extra, sh- I was naively thinking that I was going to work, save money and go go to Ohio, you know, Ohio was the place to go. <laughs> and uh, so the chef gave me extra shifts. After bus busing, I would be in the kitchen uh, cleaning, uh, washing dishes. And that's how I started, washing dishes, you know, lo- looking at those plates in the kitchen that look so much like the, the, the plates in my mother's cookbook as a mm. kid. You know, I was fascinated. I was like, this, this is just, just, this world was just, it was a completely different subculture. And the most important shock for me was there was only men in the kitchen. There was mm. not a single woman in the kitchen. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is a different world, you know, and, and men can do these things. And, and this is, you know, and, and I got interested into it. And the chef saw this and he started to give me from kitchen. I started to peel potatoes and vegetables, just like the, the ancient way of teaching people, you know, from the bottom up in the kitchen. You know, you start with dishwashing and then you become a prep and then you go to garden manger and then you go to the line doing, you know, the grill, the saute section, the saucy, and I, I did mm. all those eight steps, you know, and it, it took me up to 30 years today. I'm still in the kitchen and, <laughs> you know, after that kitchen, I, I left and I and I had a skill now and to work with Italian restaurant and then I went to work with Jean-Claude Bistro, a French bistro uh-huh. and so on and so forth until I got to boom in Soho and I got finally a, a sous chef position. From sous chef, Boom was doing so well, and then Boom was was great because we were doing this amazing global ethnic cuisine, and we had this a list of clientele. So we opened a second restaurant, and I was asked to run the other restaurant, and I, I became the chef de cuisine on that restaurant, and with the mission of introducing food for my culture as well. No, but I think I'm, I'm talking too long now. I'm taking over. Oh my God. No, <laughs> no, we're, we're so interested. Please keep going. Okay, so you're there. You're the head chef. Then what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the head chef. And, 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 I, and I play with uh, the memories, uh, mem- food memories from, from Senegal, you know, added to, of course, the menu that we had at the restaurant. And, uh, you know, we opened a restaurant in, in South Beach in Miami. And I'm sent mm-hmm. to Miami now, you know, I'm going from Soho to Miami and I'm like now established, you know, the head chef. chef. And when was this like in the 90s? I left Miami in 97. So yeah, in 90s, yeah. Fun. Cool. And I'm starting to introduce dishes like uh, uh, peanut mafe, vegetable peanut mafe. That's like a dish from Senegal with like a peanut sauce with like mm. hearty vegetables. And, uh, and, and the reaction is just amazing. People are loving it. And I'm like, wow, this is like, you know, that really... 
that's how I started to really be interested in, in bringing these ingredients and foods from my culture because I felt like, you know, I, I lived in New York City, the food capital of the world, but there's no African food in here. So there should be African food. And I know the food that I grew up eating is as good, at least as the, good, the food I'm eating here. So, you know, for there's sure. like, there's a, there's room for it. So that's how it started for me. And, and after Miami returned to New York, the executive chef of the restaurant, you know, boom, we, you know, there was some, some situation that he left the restaurant, but had an opportunity to open another restaurant with investors behind another restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And that restaurant was called Two Rooms. And I was offered the opportunity to take the room above. There's two rooms out. There was a room downstairs and, and Jeffrey, Jeffrey Murray, who was the executive chef, did his menu downstairs. And the upstairs, we, we just completely revamped it, turned it into an African-looking place, you know, with like uh, leopard uh, sofas and, and uh, you know, drinks that had like cocktails with African flavors. And I was bringing my menu with African food and mem- menus from memories, menus, the ingredients, recipes. Sometimes I would call my mom to ask her for That's food. what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, mommy, do you remember that dish that you used to cook? That was so good. I love How do you do this? And then, you know, and I take notes. And the upstairs became such a big hit. People loved the upstairs. It was fun. It was new. It was African. We had all these, you know, plants outside. You know, it was really fun, you know, like safari looking. And, uh, and the food was different and, and people reacted to it. But unfortunately, the, down, the downstairs didn't kick. So the place wasn't sustainable. Mm. And, and we had to close it after one year. But for me, everything was decided there. It was like, this food has a room here. People want it. People like it, you know. And I never looked back after this, you know, and opened my first restaurant in Brooklyn in early 2000. And uh, that's how my first restaurant, Yolele, it's uh, in Bestai, in this real area of Brooklyn where, um, you know, it was... There was no sitting restaurant at the time there. There was like Bed-Stuy was the hood, like nothing like what Brooklyn is now. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it was really pioneering. And and again, it was very well received. But I left there because I also had a, a better place, a better opportunity in Brooklyn as well. That's when I opened Le Grand Dakar in Clinton Hill. And Le Grand Dakar mm-hmm. was the same thing, you know, just bringing not only the food, but the whole culture, you know, yeah. out of the world. And, and, and sometimes we would like have fun things like closing the whole street. We would get a permit from the city. We close the street and we would bring an African village, you know, in the community. Oh my God. And, and these drummers, uh, there were some Senegalese drummers who lived in Harlem. I would bring them, we would put a stage, we would put a whole grill outside, cook a whole lamb outside. Oh my God, yeah, that's the dream. <laughs> it was amazing and, and amazing. It was so good. We, we, you know, we kept doing it on a yearly basis. It, it got so good that uh, even CNN covered it once. It was, so that's how you yes. know, it became popular. The whole I mean, community came in. And, you know, after, after, after seven years, it closed down the Grand Dakar. Yeah. I took a break. I took a break from the restaurant. You know, I had an opportunity to go open a restaurant in Lagos. I was offered an opportunity to open a restaurant in Nigeria, and uh, and I jumped on it. And 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 I'm going so fast, so fast right now because in between, I, I I wrote two cookbooks. You know, I wrote yeah. uh, <laughs> I wrote Yolele. The first cookbook I wrote I wrote when I had my first restaurant. I wrote it because collecting all those recipes between the two the restaurants, boom, two rooms, and 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 Yolele, and I saw that I had enough recipes to to just put it down on a cookbook. I, my mission was always to like just bring this culture, you know, just yeah. uh, you know. So, so the cookbook I wrote it because I had a good friend of mine, Adam Bartos, an amazing photographer, who agreed to come back to Senegal with me and, and travel and to take photos. And and this this book became just this beautiful book, well received. We got uh, you know awarded several times and and. You know, finding a publisher wasn't easy. I didn't have an yeah. agent and no one was like, who's what African cookbook? I mean, right. Come on. Like, right. <laughs> the, so, so that was a reaction I had until I, I met with Lake Isle Press. So after the first cookbook and I closed my second restaurant, I decided to work on the second cookbook. And while working on the second cookbook, I got this offer to open a restaurant in Lagos. So I'm back to Lagos now. I opened mm-hmm. this restaurant in Lagos in this uh area called Victoria Island. For those of you who know Lagos, Victoria Island is like this really nice and posh area of Lagos. 
And uh, in Victoria Island, there is no African restaurant. That's what you'd see in many African cities. In the, the posh areas, you see everything but African restaurant. You'd see like French, Japanese, uh, Italian, whatever, and, um, and no, no Africans because, you know, we, we, I think it's just a little bit part of uh, how we were colonized, you know. We tend yeah. to look down at what we have. And, uh, and, uh, and for me, that was the challenge. I was like, wow, you know, I have to make this as good as the other restaurants. And, and I'm sure, I was so sure that people would connect to it because I saw the reaction of people in New York City to the food and stuff. And, and sure enough, you know, we opened Knock. It's called Knock by Alara. Knock is still like one of the top destinations in Lagos today, you know, and, uh, and it's people are, people are loving it because it offers local flavors, you know, local ingredients. And you have the expatriates, you have the local, the, 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 the Nigerians themselves, they're all coming because, we, you know, they were looking for those flavors and they didn't have access to them in their own country. After I, I wrote my book, Senegal, Senegal uh, was a continuation of the first book. You know, the first book was Yolele, and it was really about the the food that inspired me, the food of, from my childhood, you know, the food. So if you see in Yolele, the, the pictures of like in the food scenes, my mother, my aunts, my mm-hmm. grandmothers, we go all the way to the village and those food scenes, you know, I wanted the, the reader to, to, to connect with where the food that inspired me is coming from. So, yeah. so the second book was about where is where are those ingredients coming from? Those ingredients, who's bringing those ingredients to this cuisine? You know, because I thought you know it was important to go to the source. You know, sometimes we have these cookbooks. Most of the time, cookbooks are about um, you know the, the chefs and the plates, the finished plates. But how about where it came from? The farmers. Yeah. The f- Man, you know, so the cookbook became this this kind of a travelogue around the the food culture of Senegal. You know, we went and met with the rice growers, we met the fonio growers, we met the fishermen, and each of them, you know, you have stories and individuals in the book and interviews, and you know their challenges, you know their stories, and then you have recipes about those ingredients. So that's how Senegal became one of the most beautiful book I've you know I've, I've dreamed of, of of writing. You know, and yeah. it was it became finalist of the James Beard Award, and then I opened Teranga. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God! I mean, just how much your career spans—it's crazy. So sorry, please talk to us about Teranga. Well, Teranga, there's a story to Teranga before Teranga. So, I, like I said, right, the, the Senegal book was about the producers. And as I'm writing it, I'm like, I'm seeing that those producers are very challenged. They don't have access to markets, yet they have great products. So right. I'm like, maybe I can figure out a way to introduce those products. You know, living in New York City and seeing how ingredients are being accepted by consumers. Consumers are looking for new ingredients. Chefs in particular are looking for new ingredients. And they are conscious. They want ingredients that are, you know, wholesome and uh, you know, with integrity. So I, I decided to start a company that would bring those ingredients to the market, you know, up and, and work with the farmers. So I would improve their economy, you know. So the, the goal was to like work with farmers, get those ingredients, bring them to the market. And the first ingredient we started with is called Fonio. That's how I started Yolele. That's a company mm-hmm. called Yolele. And Yolele uh, would bring the ingredients to markets like, uh, you know, Whole Foods and, and around the country. That's what we're doing now. How about those who just want to come and eat them? And that's how Teranga came to be. Teranga was ah. just this place that would offer prepared food with ingredients like fonio or red rice from Liberia or uh, uh, baobab or moringa. You know, all those ingredients are ingredients that are familiar to any West Africans, we see them on a regular basis. But uh, for New Yorkers, it was new, but it was ingredients that New Yorkers would also embrace because it was nutritious, it was um, gluten-free, you know, Teranga is gluten-free restaurant. So this is how Teranga came to be. Wow. You know, I was reading that you kind of describe yourself as a culinary ambassador. And I was thinking like, well, what does that really mean? And then hearing you tell this, tell tell your story, it's so clear, right? It's about bringing the food that you grew up with to the masses in so many different ways, right? I mean, it right. starts with bringing the, you know, bringing your recipes. And by the end, it's bringing the actual ingredients. And I just think that's so just really moving and special. I was also just really struck by how much of like a 
an environmental and like a social justice bent, it seems like everything you do has. So that the Fonio is also part of reverse desertification and giving farmers more income. And is that just like, is that an important component for you in everything that you do or did it just so happen? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's very, very important. And uh, it's it important. And it also happened because we're fortunate to have those ingredients that are just adapted to this environment. Senegal is a country that's located in south of the Sahara Desert. So it's like it's a dry area. And the whole area is called the Sahel. And that's where those ingredients grow. And and if we don't you know, figure out a way to, to promote and, and even just improve the cultivation of those ingredients, the Sahel is going to keep expanding and the desert, the desert is going to keep advancing. You know, in those communities, if you when you go there, you realize that those are the poorest communities you ever got to see. You know, they, yeah. they have nothing. I mean, they really nothing. And, and the most striking thing you notice is the youngsters are all gone. You only see all, mostly right. all women, all the people, and the, where are they, the youngsters? They're trying to get to Europe. They, they, right. they, they, that's their, you know, that's their, to them, is the, the final goal. You know? There's no opportunities where they are. You know, it's the, the desert is there. I mean, it's like, it's so boring, you know. It's like you, every day, the same, you know, nothing to do. So they, they and, but the way they try to get to Europe is, is, is mind-boggling. Some of yeah, them really, take... Yeah. They take the guard boats, you know, like they take the guard boats that are meant for fishermen to just go, you know, slightly offshore. And they just cross, you know, like the Atlantic, in a way they, they go all the way alongside the Atlantic and then cross Mediterranean and get to Spain, you know, that's the closest thing. But it's like half of them don't make it. Right, right. so dangerous. They, they have, yeah, thousands die every year. I mean, thousands drown every year, but they, they still do it, you know, because they think it's worth the risk. To me, finding ways, opportunities to keep them there, you know, to give them opportunities to stay was just yeah. one of the main motivation, you know. And in addition to that, those farmers would stay and grow crops that would also slow desertification. So that's also a plus, you know, so those crops like Fonio, you know, the advantage that they have, they have deep roots that, that retain the water and they restore the soil. They restore the soil. So, so you know, so that's really one way to, to mitigate climate change. To me, it was a no-brainer, you know. I'm like, I've seen how uh, in the U.S. people are fascinated by ancient grains, People are right. fascinated by quinoa, you know, so right. they the consumers that here, they the market for that. And this the, this this reverse thing as well, the fact that, you know, like I mentioned in Lagos, people didn't have uh, their local foods. That's just because of this complex of inferiority. They think mm-hmm. they, they oftentimes tend to look down at their own products and their products happen to be superior, far superior to the yeah. ones that they import all the time, you know. And right. I was trying to, to to reverse that, you know, I'm like, if I can uh, turn crops like Fonio into world-class crop, you know, maybe in our cities, we'll start to look again and, and, and reconsider them. And there's, uh, in addition, there are people, conscious consumers, the growing middle class as well, who, is, who are looking right. for those products. They just don't have access to them. So, mm-hmm. so this was the whole the whole challenge. And that's how we started uh, Yolele and Teranga and, and, uh, and everything else. So, what do you think your next product would be after Fonio? Like, what do you think is the next most exciting thing that you would want to introduce other people to? We have five new products uh, in the market and they, they all derive the Fonio, the Fonio pilafs, but using ingredients that are ingredients that are also grown in West Africa that are nutritious. And uh, so one of them is Moringa. The moringa is like this uh, this really amazing leaf, very rich in protein. I think the the, the the highest protein content in a leaf is in moringa, and it's very it's sustainable. It grows also in that dry area. It's uh, coming from a tree, and we have another fonio pilafs. We call it Afro funk, but Afro funk is coming from the fact that there's a fermented locust bean that's in the, oh. in, the in the in the in the mixture. And this locust wow. bean is also a sustainable one that we will start to package. You know, pilaf is already in the market, but the locust bean itself will have in October in the market. So that's coming up as well. So 
coming from a tree called the Nere tree. It's another tree that's, that grows in poor soil, just like Fonio, and, you know, great, sustainable, and, and, and highly nutritious as well. And the fact that it's fermented even adds to the nutrition content as well. That's another one, baobab tree. I don't know if you heard of baobab tree, but mm-hmm. baobab is also uh, this tree that grows to be a thousand plus years old. And this fruit is really rich in vitamin C. And uh, we started adding baobab in one of our porridge and fonio porridge. So that's another ingredient that we will also have as an ingredient separately. There's another bean that is called bambara beans. It's an ancient, it's an ancient bean as well. It's kind of like a peanut. It tastes like peanuts, but it doesn't mm. have the allergens of peanuts. It was here in Africa for, for the longest time until peanut got introduced through colonial times, you know. That's, that's, and peanuts is easier to, 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 to grow. And, uh-huh. and, and, and the farmers were also motivated to grow peanuts because the French, in the case of Senegal, our colonial colonizers, the French, were buying the peanuts from the farmers. So it was a cash crop. You know, the farmers were motivated because, and then that's how Bambara bean became, you know, second class and, and peanuts became the first thing. So we wow. want to bring back, we want to bring back the, the, the Bambara bean because it's, it's very nutritious and it's, uh, I think it's going to do well here because, it, like I say, it tastes like peanuts, but it doesn't have the allergens of peanuts. <laughs> oh my God, that could be huge. You yeah, make truly. like bumbara, um, like bambara. peanut butter, bumbara butter, like for exactly. kids. That'd be exactly. huge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was wondering when you go home to Senegal, do you cook? Do you let your mom cook? Like, mm-hmm. what's the what's the dynamic now that you're such a professional chef? That's, that's that's a good one. At home, at home, it's it's interesting that my aunt actually, my mom passed a few years ago, but my aunt cooks. She loves to cook, and we did cook together. Sometimes she allows me in the kitchen. I don't cook as often as I'd like because also of the fact that when I'm in Senegal, oftentimes I'm still working, so I'm cooking, but professionally. And when I get home, it's like that's the only time I downtime, relaxing, be with the family. And you know, but I did cook a couple of times with you know with them, and and we enjoy that. We enjoy cooking together. I enjoy making them taste new things that they haven't yeah. had. So it's great. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Sophie and I? You know, we started this podcast because we love throwing dinner parties and and hosting people. Like just the differences between and how people throw dinner parties and host guests in Senegal versus in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It's a, it's a different different food culture. It feels like Senegal, is. there's always a dinner party because there's a lot of people in the house, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. people, you know, everyone is invited. Open door for everyone, you know, because we, we have this interesting superstition that sharing your food, especially with someone who's not expected he or she is bringing blessings to you and, and, and your, your food, your bowl, because we eat around the bowl, your bowl will always be plentiful. That's, that's just this. And the whole country strongly believes it. So you'll find that's yourself. so great. It's amazing. It's amazing. When you go to Senegal, you'll, you'll see it. People will love to have you over for lunch or dinner. They'll invite you. And if you happen, let me tell you now, if you happen to be in a household by just, just pure coincidence, and they invite you to say, oh, please stay for lunch. You have to never say no. You have to say mm-hmm, yes, right. even if you already ate. Even if mm-hmm. you're full, you have to. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's a custom, you know, it's a culture. You have to at least come and have a spoonful of the food because this is how you give them those blessings that they're expecting. You know, so so have a spoonful right. and say thank you. So they know that you you are well mannered. But if you say no thank, that's like, oh, well, you're not giving your blessings. You know? <laughs> you're <laughs> so not getting sad. invited back. Yeah. Well, you know, they always invite you. Oh no, no, it's not the case. They'll always invite yeah. you. But it's just that you know, it's uh, it's it's just for you to to give back. You know, you, over there, giving is receiving, especially when it comes to food. You know. When you give the food, to, I share my food with you. In, in reality, I'm receiving your blessings, you know. So, right. And they will tell you, have some more. And, and they'll make sure you have the choicest part, you know, because they give, you have to give the best part to the best of what you have to, to the guest. And, and especially when you come from a different land, a different country, then it's like, you know, you're offering. That's why that's, we call this tradition Teranga, which is the name of my restaurant. Oh, 
teranga is this tradition. Teranga, it translates as hospitality, but it's it's really so deeper than that. It's like, you know, give the best of what you have to the foreigner, to the guest, to the, the, the unexpected guest, you know, because that's when you are really, really giving it to yourself. You're really receiving the best coming for you. You know, you're opening doors for you. You're opening. So it's a, it's, it's a strange uh, but beautiful tradition. That's like the actual spirit of generosity mm-hmm. is not only saying, please come and have something, but also saying, I want you to have the best, you know, not I'm going to save the chicken leg that I want for myself, but no, instead exactly. saying, That's like, capitalism. I actually, you know, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. so true. Right. You know, but like, I looked at this dish and I thought about what would make you the happiest. It's, it's right. That's generosity. Yeah. I know, I, and we have one day a year, Thanksgiving, where we share with other people, but the rest of the year, <laughs> right. we keep our stuff to ourselves. <laughs> That's that day. So embarrassing. Thanksgiving every day in Senegal. So, so yeah. to answer your question about the, the the party, how we do the party, traditionally we eat around the bowl. Okay, we have a big bowl, a big platter. Usually it's on the floor, you know. So there's like a straw mat on the floor. I'm giving the tradition. Obviously, if you go to Dakar to the city, you see that you know there's like lots of influences from the West and. Right tend to eat on tables now and everything mm. but traditionally and you still see even in the modern houses you still see at least lunchtime where people eat on the floor on the straw mats you know and the the, the belief is just by eating around the bowl first of all there's like always room for unexpected guests you know because you always make room for them there's not like a certain number of plates in the on the table you know so right. that's how it went the bowl is full of uh, usually it's grains, right? It could be millet couscous, which is a traditional grain. It could be fonio, it could be rice, you know, and the grains, on top of the grains, you have the sauce and the vegetables and the protein, you know. Traditionally, it's fish. I mean, because Senegal is a coastal country, that's like usually what you would see. Every guest around the world has to imagine in front of you an imaginary triangle uh, on the ball. You, you Like imagine right. a triangle that comes from the center directly towards you, you know, mm-hmm. and and person next to you has a, his triangle, a horse triangle, and so on and so forth, right? And you have mom, she's the only one who's allowed, mom or actually women, she's the only one who's allowed to go in the center of the ball and distribute <laughs> everyone equally. Ah. So you're not, you're not allowed to go, you're not allowed to go directly and grab the, <laughs> the, the piece yeah. that you know, and, and she, she she tends to give the best parts to the guests. So that's how we grew up eating. And you have to imagine that you have to always eat with your right hand. You know, that's like a tradition to you eat with your right hand. That's the mm-hmm. hand that you give to people when you greet them. That's like the hand of like the giving hand, whatever the heart. For the kids in particular, yeah, you finish what's in your mouth before you put your hand back in the bowl. Because, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes kids tend to like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's also another another rule. You know, there's some rules when you eat around the ball. And, you know, because we do it every day, we eat around the ball every day. So that's an opportunity to teach certain values to the children. And one of those values is to be, you know, when you have your portion, your triangle in front of you, is to be content with what you have in life, you know, content of the portions that you have, you know, and, and to be patient, you know, and and that's why, you know, chew what you have first in your mouth and then you, you're allowed to go back into the bowl and get another portion and chew again. I mean, not only is it's good for your digestive system to like eat properly, but but it's also, you know, those values that are being taught, you know, to be patient, to be content and uh, to be, you know, to be satisfied, which is, you know, some people would think that's not good. You, you They want you to be ambitious and stuff. But I mean, that doesn't mean you shouldn't <laughs> be ambitious. You should be still like, you know, you should be patient and, and, and accept sometimes accept the, the portion you're given. So they, so this, this is our, these are our parties, you know. So we would eat around the bowl. And then after the bowl, after the bowl eating, there's always what we call attire, which is a, a tea ceremony in every single household in Senegal would have a tea ceremony. And that goes the same way. A series of three cups of tea that are served to you. It's a green tea. There's one person who's dedicated in making the tea, and that person usually starts the tea even uh, sometime while lunch is being finished. 
the person is already studying the tea so that as soon as you finish, there's the first cup of tea that comes to you. And the first cup of tea is almost bitter. It's like very strong. It's not mm-hmm. sweet. And you'll notice that the cup is like a tiny cup, like a shot glass. And uh, and you'll notice that there's a, a considerable amount of foam on top of the tea. And, and you'll see, if you pay attention, the person who makes the tea, you'll see when he makes the tea, he'll take one cup and pours it high to another and to another cup and mm. he does it several times is to create the foam you have to if it's uh, you, the tea is served to you without that foam it's not the proper way you know and then mm. sometimes people would even like tease you like what kind of tea is this you know What's the, foam? <laughs> the second tea is milder it's not as bitter it has it has some sweetness to it and it's a little lighter and it also has the foam and the third comes, it's really sweet and it has mint in it. So it's like lots of mint flavor and it's very foamy as well. And and that's the time when we just connect, connect, you know, father, connect with kids and, and, and mother and father talk and everyone talks about anything. It could be about soccer, about politics, about whatever, about the market today. What was it, the market? Because the market is every day. And um, so, so that's the time to, to just like, get closer together and that happens also every day so like i said our party is every day so and that would be also at a regular party if uh, if you're invited to a dinner or a lunch party you'd have a similar setting maybe the the meal would be more elaborate and you would have maybe uh, a few uh, appetizers before the, the the meal and the appetizers could be from uh, you know what we call akara for instance it's a black ip fritter that's a, that's a mm. typical one see it as a street food but it becomes a fancy cocktail party as well and that's interesting because akara is a dish that i found in brazil as well because during slavery during the middle passage that's a dish that african captive africans took all the way to brazil and they wow. call it akara there and it's, it's this delicious fritter very simple it's black eyed peas that's been peeled of their skin and then pounded into a paste and and you add just onions and ginger and it becomes like this uh, this dough that you fry. It's mm-hmm. very light. You know, it's like crunchy and light. And you serve it with a spicy hot sauce. And in Brazil now, they add shrimp to it. And that's like even more interesting flavor. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so you have that. You'd have another dish called pastel. Pastel is like, um, it's like a, a turnover. It's like a small empanada that's been fried to pastel. You know, it has this uh, Portuguese ton- uh, right, intonation. Pastel. Yeah. Because the Portuguese came to Senegal first, you know, it's like, you know, it's interesting how food is also connected with like your history. And uh, and this one has this Portuguese influence. Portuguese came to Senegal in the early 1500s or something like that. And, uh, and they impacted with their food culture as well. You know, like in the south of Senegal, where my parents are from, it's called Casamance. We still speak a Portuguese Creole. That's, as a matter of fact, that's the language my mother would speak to me. She would speak to me mm. in Portuguese Creole most of the time. I used to hate it, but she she just like insisted on speaking that to me. <laughs> but you know that. So so you would have pastel. Pastel is a turnover. That's the fish is stuffed into this turnover. Say so there's a dough, and you you stuff it with fish, usually tuna, you know, and uh, and 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 onions. It's crispy and and you know, perfect cocktail party. And the drinks you would have would be either hibiscus, which is a, the, the national drink in Senegal. Everyone, every household makes their own hibiscus. It's like mm. it's an infusion of the hibiscus, dried hibiscus, and uh, and with some variations. Some people put mint, some people put ginger. You would also have a ginger juice, you know, and or baobab fruit juice. So, so really nice, acidic but sweet, fruit, fruity and healthy. To all those, those drinks are really healthy. And that would be, you know, perfect um, party drinks. And if you want to spike it with with alcohol, you can add rum to it or or just make it more interesting. So that's uh, that's the parties in Senegal, really. Wow! <laughs> I mean, I'm ready to go there now. Me too. <laughs> I <Let> wish. <laughs> I was going to say about the drinks. We always get questions from listeners about uh, non-alcoholic drinks to serve, and I think you know. Oh, hibiscus yeah. and, and and variations on on steeped things that are dried like like making yeah. different types of like iced teas and almost yeah. like lemonades it would be we haven't suggested that yet so i have such a specific question but how are the 
drinks sweetened? Because I know what uh, sugar is like such an intensive crop, a water intensive crop. So do they yeah, use sugar yeah. to sweeten it or do they use something yeah. else? Yeah, they used to use they used to use honey, and 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 then we got we got colonized, and then we became the north of Senegal became this big because there's a Senegal River, it became this big sugar plantation, uh, sugar cane plantation. Yeah, and that's, that's unfortunate because it produced so much sugar that was just thrown into the the market in Senegal, and people just adopted the sugar and and abusing mm-hmm. it. There's so much wrong that came with, you know, with some of the uh, colonization uh, practices, you know, and sugar is one of them, that the, the rate of diabetes got so high when it shouldn't, we wouldn't, before sugar wasn't even a thing, you know, before that right. was either natural or, or, or they would just sweeten with honey and yeah. It's unfortunate, but at the restaurant, for instance, we we avoid it. We try to we try to make it as as healthy and, and and natural as possible. So you can do it yourself. You can you don't have to sweeten it, and it's very easy to make those drinks. You know, the the hibiscus is like just an infusion. You know, and and the the ginger we make our ginger just grating ginger raw ginger. You peel it mm-hmm. and you just grate it, and and mm-hmm. then you, you you add purified water. And and it's you the just best. <laughs> and then so healthy. it's so healthy. It's so good for you. It's it's good for your immune system, and mm-hmm. it's you know, and you you can sweeten it as you like, you know, and with what you like to. But uh, but uh, you know, you don't have to to use to abuse of sugar. Like unfortunately, it's the case. You know, there's so much work to be done. So much education we need to to get back to to the way it was. When you host now. In America, right? If you're having a having people over in New York, will you usually cook Senegalese food, or do you try different things? Like, what do you usually do? Usually inspired by by Senegalese, not only Senegalese, West African, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. like you said, the restaurant is West African too. Because uh, those recipes, oftentimes you'll see they cross the borders, and food is has this tendency of crossing borders. That's why food tends to unite us. It's like this thing that that gets mm-hmm. us together. And in, in, in Africa, it's so true. In West Africa, you'd see a dish like the peanut sauce I was talking about in the middle of the, in the beginning of the interview. You'd see a version of it in Guinea, south of Senegal, another version of it in Mali, in the west of Senegal, and, and, and in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Nigeria. Each of them has their version. You know, gumbo that you have in, in, in southern cuisine in America, you, each of those Western African countries have their gumbo version, you know. And it's all as good and, and delicious as seafood and okra over rice. I mean, so 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 I, I try to not say Senegal. I try to say you know it's West African influence, and and because you know those borders are really not real. They were like imposed upon us too. So you know, food let food just decide how it goes. So when I do parties, I I I, I, I get the inspiration from those places, and of course, you know, I've I've cooked in New York City for so long, I cannot just uh, ignore the inspiration that I get from being in New York City, and 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 uh, and it works. You know, I can have um, you know ingredients from uh, um, recipes from Vietnam as far as as, as Vietnam, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, because also there's a community of Vietnamese in Senegal. My godfather is Vietnamese from Senegal. Really? Wow. <laughs> yes. It's so, it's exactly what you just said about like food doesn't know borders and how fabulous and cool that is. That like <laughs> we're all allowed to eat anything. And I mean... Yeah, I just I, that's so cool. I am with you there. You know, I don't know how to thank that person who robbed me a few years ago when I arrived in America. But I, <laughs> I would have been, <laughs> I would have been in, a, in a lab somewhere working uh, in chemistry, and you know, and uh, and and I've missed out on all this this amazing world of food, and, and it's so oh fascinating, my. and it's, and you learn every day. You know, it's like it's just there's no, an ending. You know, everywhere you travel, there's new new things to learn about food and. And just friends and and just making people happy to like I love the fact that you know it's instant gratification you know you serve someone and and they immediately appreciate it as they eat it. Oh, I'm so happy that we got to have him on. That was really, really special. He's yeah, incredible. I, he is. I learned so much, and I'm so excited to cook everything from his cookbooks. Me 
too. Me too. I mean, it really also makes me just want to get in a plane, obviously at a time when we're not really supposed to be getting in planes, but like go and explore the foods from West Africa, because I really, I know nothing about West African food, which is a, you know, which is an atrocity. But thankfully his cookbooks, I mean, this was one of the things he said that was so brilliant, like bringing pictures and pictures of his aunt and his mom and putting pictures of his community into the cookbooks really helps you connect, if you cannot go to Senegal, to the culture rather than just like a list of ingredients and instructions of how to do it. Like he's so, the whole process of the cookbooks, it's so well-rounded and wonderful. So yeah. It also is interesting though. It's like actually a lot, you know, a lot of the ingredients that he was mentioning have kind of wound their way into the health trends of like baobab and moringa, like a lot of these foods that actually, like I see them on lists, you know, on like goop or something like that. Mm-hmm. Of like people clearly have, people have clearly been made aware of them, but I think in more of a wellness sense than like a, than a culinary sense in America. And so it's, so, yeah. you know, I can't wait to to like delve more into those flavors. God, I'm getting really hungry. I saw this recipe for phonio balls, almost like meatballs, but obviously vegan um, because they're made from an ancient grain, phonio, um, in like a West African peanut sauce. Oh, so good. Maybe I'll make it and post it on our Insta. Stay tuned. Yes, (laughs) maybe. Guys, thank you for listening. We hope you like the podcast. Thanks, Colin, and thanks, Pierre, so much for being our guest this week. And we'll see you at Chip Hour, guys. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.